0: Give me a sec. Uh, firstly, Matty, we've obviously just talked a little bit offline. Um, huge honour to have you on. I've wanted to ask you for a couple of years. Finally, mustered up the courage in the last couple of weeks, mate. So, thank you very much. You're someone that I've I've followed from afar from a long time, and and have been an admirer uh, of your career. Obviously, never really spoken in person, but um, to have you on is is something that uh, I've been very excited about. So, firstly, thank you.
1: Yeah, thanks, Tom.
0: Mate, we, we were just talking okay. offline. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we've got a bunch of stuff to, to go through, but I thought given your career arc and, and some of the stuff you've done, you've, you've coached uh, over 100 test matches. I think you were just saying 300 provincial games, mm-hmm. mostly as an assistant or, or pretty much all as an assistant or a senior assistant coach. Um, We were just mentioning offline. I, I'm going through the level four coaching course at the moment. And it seems like a decision that you have to make at some point. Do I want to specialize or do I want to be a head coach? And they seem to have two very different career trajectories and, and the opportunities are different for both and there's positives and negatives to both. Yeah. Um, so obviously having you on, I thought it'd be a great opportunity to maybe let, let's start go through your career arc and how you've seen um, the progression from when you started to, to where you are now.
1: Yeah, thanks, Duncan. I think um, from my point of view, I'll probably start when I started cage. I've been a, a player um, who played in Brisbane Club Rugby for South and Sunnybank for a number of years. Um, I had Scottish links with my parents who were both Scottish. I went over, played over there for four years as a professional for Edinburgh and the Borders. I uh, was lucky enough to play a couple of A games and was picked in uh, you know, two squads for Scotland, never got a cap. But on the back of finishing my rugby career, I was lucky enough to pick up a job with the Exeter Chiefs, who were in the National One at that stage, which was um, one under the Premiership. Did that for a year as a defence coach. Absolutely loved it. Um, And then my wife was missing home. We moved back. I went back into coach. Sorry, back into teaching, which was my background um, at Villanova College in Brisbane. Also started back at Sunnybank. Uh, club rugby, which was a big difference from when you'd been coaching uh, fully professional or semi-professional to back to two nights a week. Uh, lucky enough that Sunnybank, we, in um, 2005, we won uh, their first premiership um, in the club competition, which was which was awesome. And then on the back of that, I got a really good job at the Southport School on the Gold Coast for two years, 06 and 07. Had a number of uh, really exciting young players. Again, did well in terms of we won the GPS competition both those years. A lot of those guys, the Slippers, the Tapperwise, the Morahans, um, the Simmonses, uh, all those type of the Lancers went on to bigger and better things. And um, on the back of that, uh, Ben Whitaker from Rugby Australia got in contact and said, "Listen, there's an academy job going at the Reds. Would you like to take it?" And as I said to you offline. I was really excited, but also really torn because at the time, the actual job was, uh, you know, quite a significant step down in terms of the wage uh, that I was uh, lucky enough to get through TSS with teaching and coaching and all that. So anyway, I think talking about opportunities and risks, that was probably an opportunity slash risk I took, went to the uh, Reds Academy, did that for two years. Uh, The coaches above me at the time moved on and you and McKenzie came in and another breaker opportunity, Ewan needed a defence coach. Defence had been lacking for a number of years, and he said, Maddie, we're going to bring you up in the top team, which was really good and a great opportunity, and uh, Ewan uh, really appreciated that from Ewan. Uh, was there for three years. Most people would kind of know the story. I think we went from 13th to 5th to winning it. Um, and then on the back of that, I had that connection I had with Scotland, and I played with Gregor Townsend. Gregor Townsend had been moving into the... Glasgow Warriors head coaching position. They were after defence coach and the national team had just finished the 2011 World Cup where they hadn't made it out of their pool and they were looking for a a defence coach. So I went over there and was there for eight years in dual role with both Glasgow Warriors and also Scotland. I did Glasgow Warriors for five years, Scotland for eight. last three years was Scotland. I was just by myself with Scotland. Finished the World Cup there. Dave Rennie took over the, the Wallabies, back to the Wallabies, back to Australia. Was there for two and a half, three years with them. From there, finished up with them and moved to Ricoh uh, in Japan, which I'm at now. So absolutely wonderful uh, coaching experience I've had. I've, I managed to coach three of the sides, which I grew up supporting as a, as a child, which was the Reds, Scotland and the Wallabies. So uh, not many people can probably say that, that they've been able to coach teams which they supported. So I've been really lucky on my journey and met a lot of wonderful people and players along the way. And, and I know one of your questions was, why why do I coach? And I think one of the reasons why I coach is I really enjoy the relationships, particularly with rugby. I, I love rugby as a player. I love coaching. And then with a number of those teams along the way, building those relationships and having friends for life really were the main reasons why I probably coach.
0: Um, There's, there's a a lot to unpack there. I I think um, as we mentioned offline, there's a lot of aspirational coaches that listen to this podcast. And for some reason, people ask me about what they should do with their career. And to be honest, I have no idea. I'm only in my first year, which is what I tell them. But, I mean, obviously, not everyone's going to coach 111 uh, international games and 300 provincial games, but there's there seems to be an element of timing. Yeah. Timing seems to be important, and yeah. an opportunity seems to be important. You've got to do a fucking good job, yes. and, and and winning and winning also seems to matter as well. Is 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 that how you saw it? Are there common themes that you've seen for for other guys who've had? not similar because I'm, I'm sure most people haven't had similar careers, but is are there common themes you see in guys that have been successful or, or, or who have had coaching careers?
1: Yeah, I think what you just meant, I think you mentioned four things that uh, yeah. I don't think you were spot on with all of those. I'll probably add into that like any part of life, it's it's having people to back you as well. Um, I was lucky enough, um, you know, Ben Whitaker at Rugby Australia saw something in my coaching um, that gave me opportunity to go um, from being an amateur coach as such uh, to a professional coach. And then and McKenzie gave me an opportunity because I had written actually a thesis on the Reds for my level three back then um, on the Reds' defence. He had read it and he really enjoyed the analytical side and he gave me opportunity. The Reds didn't have a particular lot of money at that stage, I was a young up-and-coming coach who was keen. He saw my work ethic. He'd spoken to people. So I think there's, as you said, there's uh, timing uh, element of opportunity. I think you've got to work really hard, as hard as you possibly can if you want to achieve something like anything in life. And then sometimes it's just, yeah, if you win something, which, you know, as I was saying to you, uh, once you won something with the Reds, Scotland was interested. I had that also that connection with Gregor Townsend, who I played with, and also playing in Scotland. So I think there's a number of factors there. Um, and you build your reputation. I think it's important. People understand, you You know, oh, he's a coach, um, which puts a lot of time and effort into it. And you try and build relationships within the rugby community as well, which I've always tried to do.
0: Do you, do you think we, – we, we mentioned this offline again. Um, do you think – you know, we mentioned that some people will get stuck in the schools um, – yeah category or the or the juniors or the academy or the or the women's category do you think it's a matter of sometimes you just take whatever opportunity you get and you've got to make the most of that to make the transition is is that a part of it as well like you yeah. you you can't bullshit super rugby players you have to be a good coach otherwise you're not going to go to the next job or the next job after that you're going to get found out eventually so you have to do a good job does does that make sense
1: yeah i think it's like in any job in life i think whatever job you're doing you do it to your best ability um and then that should hopefully open doors for you as well as that i think as you're in your own job as you've just reached out to me now i have someone like yourself who will stay in contact with each other uh, wherever we go i think building those relationships or, or or just like sending an email, or trying to get someone's number and saying, "Hey, listen, I'd love to come down to a session, or can I do something for you?" I, you know, I've noticed your team. Can, can I write something for you? you have a look at it. Now, some people might say no, or some people might say, "Yeah, go ahead." And then you read something, or, and then that's the kind of link into somewhere. I think anything in life is trying to do the best you can in in your job, but also try and build those links and um, connections, and hopefully that opens opportunities or doors and and
0: that one of the one of the things i found really amazing and that i really like about coaching is just how open guys who uh who have had that experience are with the young guys coming through like i've had some amazing conversation like wayne i did a podcast with wayne smith you know one one of the greatest rugby coaches of all time who just gave his time freely and i I really like that element of coaching the passing on of knowledge from the you know, the more experienced generation to the new generation. I think that's really important. And having the opportunity to sit down with someone like Dan McKellar or Dan Palmer and talk about Ford's play is so, so valuable for a young guy coming through. You you just can't like that experience is, is incredible.
1: Yeah. And and it's funny that you mentioned Wayne Smith (laughs) because I think um, uh, he he was some, someone which I was maybe going to mention today, but I think of two people that helped me early in my coaching career. Uh, One is Les Kiss, who's just got the Reds job. Listen, I haven't spoken to Les for a while. I've lost his number of contact. But one thing, when I first came into uh, the Reds, um, you and Mackenzie knew Les from working with him at the Waratahs and Les had moved to Ireland and Ireland was on tour here early. It might have been my first year at the Reds and Les um, spent, you know, two or three hours just going through all the defence stuff with me for for a young up and coming coach. I thought that was, uh, was a real sign of what a great bloke he was. Wayne Smith, uh, the Scotland rugby union um, employed him to come over and spend a week with Glasgow, a week with Edinburgh. And again, I think it was might've been my first or second year Um, with me being the Reds, we'd played um, the chiefs um, when Wayne was there, I think in his last year and we bounced ideas off. And and then for a number of years after that, we remained uh, in contact and he's very good best mates with Dave Rennie all very good. So, those two guys for me for a young guy who's a coach and how how high they were up in the coaching ladder just for me that was just unbelievable that those guys would spend that time and effort and keep those connections so
0: yeah let's let's talk about mentors in general that's one of the things i wanted to ask you anyway um doing uh doing the level four you get given a mentor i've i've Connected with the great Matt Williams, who is a fantastic human being and someone that I, I have enjoyed talking to very much and sharing experiences with. Um, he's been incredibly generous as well with his time. um How important is having mentors for you? Do you have any mentors now? Yeah, and and how would you go about a young coach potentially contacting and getting a mentor?
1: Yeah, no, listen. I think mentors for me are. Uh, are really important tools that, that can work really well. I mean, I mean, when I felt well for a long time, I probably didn't have uh, a mentor in terms of there was a set routine. I probably talked to different people along the way, um, a bit like what I just discussed a little bit there with Wayne Smith. I'd every once in a while send him an email or try and get a hold of him ask him different things defensively. But I think in the last couple of years, I've definitely um, been more intentful around having people who I meet up with on a regular basis, some more regular than others, but like one guy which I connected with um, when he came back from Ireland is the guy, Matt Wilkie, who's the RA, RA Director of Coaching Development. Yeah. He lives here on the Gold Coast where I'm from. So he actually first job was at TSS where my boys uh, working and sorry, going to school. So I've, I've been in contact with him and done a fair bit of work with him just in the last two or three years when moved into Rugby Australia and also since I've left, um, we talk a lot. The other guy that I've worked with is a guy called Ben Summons, which is he owns his own business in a, in a company called Purpose and Flow, which he's been a CEO and he, he was very good. Uh, Maddie was more kind of rugby based and and Ben is a little bit more kind of, you know, your philosophies, um, you know, your goals, your visions, all those type of things, which Again, I think you can have mentors for different parts of where you find yourself. Um, You know, I I talked to a lot of coaches in terms of Zooms and that. Uh, Anthony Sebold, who's Manly's coach, he was with England as a defence coach. I first went to the Storm in 2013 when I was with Scotland. He was doing the defence then and we remained friends. He came over to Scotland and I was just been on a couple of um, Zooms with him over the last couple of weeks Um, because I've moved into a slightly different role with Rico adding to my role as a a coaching director there. Um, So I was just bouncing ideas of him. He'd done it in the England environment. He'd done it at Newcastle when he left the Broncos. So they're important. Uh, Gregor Townsend, I speak to quite a lot because I played with him, also worked with him for eight years. David Nusifora is another one that I'm very lucky enough to know. I worked with him with the Aussie 20s way back in um, 08. He took me on as me and Darren Coleman were the kind of development coaches there and I've remained in contact with him. And then he was with Ireland when I was with Scotland. So I'd see him quite regularly. So he's been another um, very good person to bounce ideas off. I think you've got to pick someone where you're comfortable with also like uh, some coaches are quite busy. So it's sometimes good to get a guy who's maybe retired or semi-retired or, you know, just cause they can give you like, uh, again, I'm, I'm not sure. I know Matt Williams. I don't know whether he's fully retired. I know he still has. He's,
0: he's doing the Academy stuff for No. on at the moment.
1: Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah. So I mean, it sounds like he's still coaching, which is great, but he probably still has the time when you sometimes, some of these coaches that we know is particularly if you're international coach and it's 24 seven, um, yeah, you, you just got to pick people who you're comfortable with, and probably that, depending on how much you meet up or can they can see your coaching or whatever you can relate to, because some people are pretty busy as well. So.
0: Absolutely, and you you don't really want someone harassing you 24 seven either. I could can imagine. You mentioned uh, talking about philosophy, yeah, just previously. One thing that we keep getting asked in in these coaching courses is is what's your coaching philosophy and it seems to be something with me in particular that's kind of evolving as I get some more experience and you know learn more about different areas of the game and people yeah um do you do you have a coaching philosophy do you think it's important for young coaches to sit down and work out uh what their coaching philosophy is
1: yeah I definitely think it's good to have a bit of a framework and idea of how you want to go about things I think with philosophies for like if you're talking rugby for me there's nearly a kind of rugby philosophy the way you want the game how you want to play the game or coach the game or how you think you're going to win the game of rugby and then there's probably the the culture or everything that surrounds how you coach I mean um, for me that part of my philosophy I've tried to focus on what four kind of main things or like a a bit of a winning formula and that's having a really good culture uh, focusing on people having a real strong preparation, and then execution. So they're the kind of four areas that I've tried to look at in terms of my coaching or when I'm coaching rugby um, and working there. In terms of uh, my kind of rugby philosophy on how games are won and lost and things like that, I think because I'm a defence coach, I always believe that you know having a strong defence is a really good way of your your team's winning rugby so having a strong defensive philosophy but like in everything I think you've got components to a game of rugby for me it's kind of like you've got your your set piece your defense your kicking game your attack and it's those kind of you know four maybe five areas that you decide there's a couple of things you probably there's areas which you like I'm saying defenses that you know in, in most of the teams, which I've had good success with or won something, defence has been a really strong part of those teams. Um, but then how much time do you spend on the kicking game? How much yes. time do you spend on the attack? How much time do you spend on the set piece? I think more more and more teams, I know in the last, probably in the last five years, since I was just leaving Scotland into the Wallabies, pardon me, now with Rico, um, I think more teams have a game model and uh, I know with the Wallabies, we spend a lot of time on, you know, having, uh, you know, dominance at peace, destructive defence, um, you know, uh, all these, you know, your four areas and key areas and working out, you know, those type of things. I mean, the other thing I like is playing a high-tempo game, like making the game exciting. Um, you know, I said defence is a strong part of my philosophy, but having high-tempo, high-fitness, playing a lot of games within your training – to keep it relevant and also get your fitness through through your games uh, are something which which I really enjoy and feel is a really important part. And it's certainly something which Gregor Townsend, and we, we might talk about other coaches, but Gregor Townsend did uh, very well with Scotland. We played lots of games and we had emphasis on different parts of the games which you wanted to try and focus on. Um, but certainly like any uh, sport or team, you've got to have a – Maybe a game focus. You've got to get a skill focus, and whether that's open or closed. So there's all those elements you've got to drop into a program, and depending on where you are in the season or where your team's at development-wise, is kind of what area do you push of of each? Uh,
0: let's talk about that a little bit because it's something that I've noticed. Obviously, Shoot Shield is three nights a week for us. Yeah. So every time you add something to training, you got to take something away. Yes. From from what I've from what I've seen. How do you make decisions on the biggest bang for your buck items that are going to hopefully uh, affect the result positively on Saturday?
1: Yeah, well, that's uh, yeah. I is mean, is that
0: the million dollar question? Or?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think. Listen, I think rugby for me, and again, um, I reflect back to my time when I, I left the Exeter Chiefs, uh, who were at that time they were semi-professional, so we had a couple of guys maybe five, six guys who were fully pro. We probably had another 10 guys who were semi-professional and we had another probably 10 guys who were amateur, had a full-time job. And our training started at like maybe 3.30. So those guys who were full-time workers kind of got a few hours off. Um, Then we went, went back and coached Sunnybank where at that time it was only two nights a week and everyone, you know, you only turned up for an hour and a half or two hours. I think that level for me, you want to keep it, as simple as possible in terms of your game plan, your game philosophy, also having that that synergy between maybe the, whether it's fourth grade to first grade or definitely first and second grade so people can come in and move up and move out and, and be really strong on the fundamentals of the game um, and, and coach that really well. And then we're talking about those games, like try and have your game plan within the game so you can get your biggest bang for your buck um, and whether that's a game where there's you know a bit of attack and there's a kicking emphasis, like we'll play different games with different teams I've been involved with that could be love the hunt or you know kick chase kill and where you're kind of promoting the strategy, you're kick chasing your in your pressuring. And it's a game that they all know, and they know the outcomes, and and you just hit them with it every Tuesday, and that's with a lot of teams. So you're getting your extensive running, your fitness in, but yeah. you get your game plans, and you might tweak it. You know, you might have a team which I'm just yeah you know, making up as I go here, but they might they might be quite flat in the backfield, so you're kicking long, or they might be deep, in it, so you're, you're kicking. You know, you might be kicking more contestable. So you just tweak. You play the same game each week, but you're just tweaking the little elements that, you know, they're playing the Hunter Wildfires and, you know, you might have a really strong team, uh, you know, with time on the ball in your backfield, so you might put grubbers through. So I hope that answers your questions. I think no, you go fundamentals, you go back to, you know, things that the players know but that you can tweak within that time. Um, yeah. I mean, again, sometimes professional rugby, you think you've got a lot of time and you do, but... Um, Keeping it simple is very important too, as well as international rugby. I think when you've got people coming from different programs, I think keeping it as simple as possible is key. For me. How,
0: how does coaching change as you progress through the ranks in terms of? Because I can can imagine if you're if you're with the Brumbies or the Reds, you got them most of the year, so you're going to be able to really have an impact on their physical ability, their their skill set, you know, their their mindset. You're really going to be able to have a huge impact. But then when you make the jump up to, to test rugby, you might have them for a week or two weeks before you play a game. How, how is that how is that different when you you're a coach?
1: Yeah, well, listen, I I um I've been lucky enough to coach in both of those environments and they're different environments. I mean, I mean, during this World Cup cycle, a lot of these teams become a bit like club sides because you've you know they've got that extra preparation sometimes, or particularly the Northern Hemisphere teams do. Um but yeah, it's a good question. I think um, with the super rugby or a pro 14 or or whatever it's called now over there is you have big preseasons so you have a good impact and you can add things to your program and see that with international rugby, again, it's trying to keep it as simple as possible, particularly when guys are coming from different systems and it's might it's just having one or two key points and just trying to drive those key points and, uh, I mean, it's just I know there's there's lots of uh, talk about the Wallabies, for instance, and new coaches coming in and it's a bloody tough environment for those guys. So they've got a brand new coaching group coming in and they're trying to develop the game. They're trying to work out who, the, who they've got in terms of players and they're up against the best teams in the world. So it's a bloody tough environment to operate in and you just got to try and keep it as simple as possible, keep to the fundamentals, And also develop a a simple game plan that's that's winning rugby for
0: you. Yeah. So it'd be more strategy, strategy based coaching as opposed to just skill set.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you gotta you gotta keep touching skills as well. It's kind of like it is, it's a lot of well, it's a lot of organization with test rugby or test match rugby, particularly when you first come into camp. So you're trying to spend, you're trying to not overdo it, but you're also trying you've you're trying to do little walkthroughs, you're trying to um, get the information as best as possible and not overload them so that yeah. they go out there and they're going, oh, I've got 10 things in my mind. I can't, you know, so it's, it's a difficult environment. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I just think you've got to kind of, you do your walkthroughs, uh, you know, get the learning, get the knowledge and then try and keep it as simple as possible. And then you add layers to it as you go, um, which all teams try and do.
0: Mate, you've worked with some great head coaches. What have you learned from guys like Ewan McKenzie? I believe you worked with Vern Cotter, Dave Rennie. What have you learned from those guys? Gregor Townsend.
1: Yeah, listen, I think I've been extremely lucky that I've been involved with some excellent head coaches and I've got a lot of learning from them. I mean, Ewan McKenzie, he was my kind of first full-time head coach, and nearly one of the best, uh, even though every one of those head coaches that you mentioned a few more, which I might mention, I've learned a lot off. I think Ewan McKenzie was very good at assessing uh, an environment and working out what needed to stay, what needed to go. He was very good at asking people's opinions and not micromanaging and let you get on in your area, which I think's important as a head coach. It's always important that, of course, you won't, things done right and a certain way, but you don't want to micromanage. Um, I mean, what he did with the Reds or what we did as the Reds was pretty good. I mean, for a decade there, they'd been languishing in the, you know, the bottom three or four and to get them from 13th to fifth to winning them in two years was, was amazing. And, uh, you know, one, one of the, one of the memories in rugby that I always remember and being part of it, how, how much enjoyable it was and those relationships. Um,
0: can you know, you remember, next- can you remember what he did there? Oh, what you you were there too. Well, can you remember yeah. what you guys did? Obviously, a very young team coming through. Quade, Will Gania, yeah. kind of at the start of their career trajectory. Yeah. What what yeah. can you recall from that time?
1: Well, listen. I think um, he did a couple of things really well. I think um, you know he the Reds at the at that particular time were at probably rock bottom in terms of. How how the team was playing or winning games, but also that unfortunately the organization didn't have a lot of money. So he was very good at like he brought me in, as I said to you, I probably in my first or first couple of years I was on an academy wage. So he was he was pretty good at working the budget. So he was good at operating at that level. He was very good at managing
0: a bit
1: of um, money ball. Yeah, yeah, money ball. Um he really worked hard on the culture of the of the team. He had a real big he was very good at the cultural side of games and, and Mate, what he said to me was defence had actually had reasonable statistics attacking-wise, and, and not to say Jimmy Mackay did an outstanding job in attack, but they were reasonable in attack. Defence, they were poor. Now, he he did two things. Defensively, he said, I'm going to bring you in because by having a coach him, we're saying it's important. He also said defence is linked to culture. So, um, you know, that's a tough part of the game. We're going to spend a lot of time in it. and And he did that. And from my point of view... As a defence coach, um, you need your head coach to really support defence because if your defence coach is right on board and and knows how important defence is, uh, generally defence will be pretty good. And our defence is also – it's very easy to sit back and also, you know, look at a score at the end of a game and say if a team scored a lot of points or opposition, they can say, oh, defence was shit. Well, that could be the case and there could be areas of defence which aren't up to but it's also got to do with how often did you kick the ball? How often did you turn the ball over and where did you turn over the ball? So everything's interlinked with rugby, as we know. It's not just attack by itself. It's not just defence by itself. It's not just set-piece. There's all an interrelationship. But I think the thing for me is having – if you're a defence coach, having a head coach which sees it as important – Gives it important in the game plan. Talks about it, and also gives the amount of time that's needed. That's my and, point of
0: view. And you and valued you and valued that strongly defensive side of the game.
1: Yes, he did, and he um and that was one of the main things as well as he I think the three things from memory. One was culture, one was defence. I'm trying to think the other one. Um, I can't remember off the top of the other the other major area, but what he was very good at was. Our first year, 2010, where we went from 13th to, finish, uh, to fifth, we ran the ball. We didn't kick the ball much, and we had really good success with that. But what we did is the next year, um, like the Brumbies, for instance, I remember playing the Brumbies in 2010. They just put a wall of 14 in front, and we ran We ran up, and, and um, they just turned us over. And it was really good learning for us, and we didn't make the finals, and we reflect on the game. And... The next year when we won it, we actually kicked the ball the most in the comp. But whenever people talked about the Reds, they always thought we ran it. But we ran it, but it was the types of kicks. We'd yeah. do grubbers. We did dinks. Uh, Quaver do cross fields. we do long ones. So there was, you know, how you kick was really important. And I think you see what the All Blacks have just uh, worked on just recently with Joe Smith. Joe Smith, for me, with my time, knowing him and also coaching against him with Ireland's the kicking part of the game, he was very good. And I'm assuming he's had a bit more of an influence with the All Blacks in that first 20, 25 minutes against South Africa, where some of the kicking was unbelievable, how they just picked them apart. Um, but yeah, so getting back to you and what he did very well was he, um, he adapted, he adapted to what he had. He adapted to the game. He's a very, he's a, he's a smart guy. Forget about rugby smart. He was just a, as we all know, he's a town planner. He's, not many people can seem to get hold of him anymore, which is a little bit unfortunate. I think after his rugby experience, he decided that part at the moment's not for me, and yeah. um, it's a bit of a shame. But anyway, but then I moved on to Gregor Townsend. So Gregor Townsend for me is a, again a very smart guy. He did he did politics in uh, university and um, very driven coach. Um, again, when I came on board, we'd just won with the red so. He was very big with Glasgow. We had a template of winning rugby and defence was number one. Don't beat yourself was number two. Don't beat yourself was like not having turnover, exiting well, um, things like that. Then I think set piece was third off memory and then attack was fourth, even though he was an attack coach. But I think if you're defending well and you're not turning over the ball and not giving penalties away and exiting well, again, you're going to be a hard team to beat. But what Gregor, I reckon, was really – Gregor's a real – he'll go out and pick the best pieces of different coaches, and that could be coaches in rugby, but he'll he'll go and talk to – he'll go – he'll get on a plane and go to Belgium and talk to the Belgian soccer coach. if He's really good in one area game. He's very, very good in that regards. He was also very game-based driven. Pardon me. So he was very – a lot of our activities were game-based so,
0: can, I, can, I, can I ask potentially a strange question? But given that you've worked with Dave Rennie recently, yeah. it might not be that strange. H- how important do you think it is for a coach to have a deep understanding of the culture that they're going into? So obviously, Ewan, Ewan would have had a great understanding of Queensland. Obviously, he's from – he played in New South Wales, but yeah. Australian guy coaching in Queensland. Gregor Townsend, the Scottish legend. Yeah. I, I doubt anyone understands Scottish rugby better than he does. Do you, do you think that's important or is it something where an outsider can go in and learn the culture and, and have an appreciation for it? Do, do, you know, do you know what I'm trying to get Yeah, at?
1: No, no, definitely. I think for me it's, it's very important. It's very important. Uh, I, don't, I don't think you have to come from that culture to coach in that environment, but I think it's very important, as you suggested, that, that you have a, a very good understanding or an idea of that environment. Um, yeah, and, uh, yeah, I think it's really important that you have that understanding. Now, Dave, Dave did a good job at coming in and, and he got a balance between having an Australian flavour but also driving things which he'd done before. Um, again, I don't know whether on your podcast or you knew we kind of had an, an Australian figure who, um, you know, that we referred to quite a lot. Um, you know what type of person does a wallaby person want to be uh, and this? and and Dave had done that because I'd seen him work at Glasgow because he went into Glasgow after us, and I lived in Glasgow, so I come in. so he had one there. He also had one. He had the same type of guy at the Chiefs, but for the chief's environment. So, um so Dave had a template of culture and how he was going to go about things. and yeah. and again, Dave was being an islander himself and 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 have an understanding that, the Australian environment now compared to what it was, might've been 25, 30 years ago. It was, a, you know, at least half and half uh, Highlander. Um, so he was good at that part of things.
0: That um, no, was just a, yeah, it was just a thought I had. I thought it was interesting. Like I, I, I know guys that played in the team who loved Dave and yeah. absolutely raved about him. And and you always notice when the the national anthems are, singing, are playing and you go to the coaching box, he's singing the Wallaby or the national anthem. And I think those small things really do matter.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Listen, he's, um, I mean, he's a proud, he, he's a proud Kiwi, but I mean, in his role as wallaby coach, he was a proud Australian and a proud wallaby coach. So, um, so yeah. So in, in that, in that regard, he, um, he tried to drive the culture and the Australian part of that culture as well. And as best as his, his vision was.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that t- totally makes sense, mate. Sorry for cutting you off. We, uh, oh, no. We're talking about Gregor.
1: Oh yeah, so yeah, Gregor, Gregor did a fantastic job. Like again, wonderful experience being involved with Glasgow. Glasgow was a different setup to uh, Reds when I came in. De- Glasgow's defence was pretty good. I think it was sitting like maybe fourth. They were a tough team. Uh, they hadn't. No Scottish team had ever won. Um, a significant trophy or won a, a league. So that was our vision. So he was also very good at driving a vision. And uh, I was there for five years. I think the first year we got knocked out in the semi-finals against Leinster following year, we played Leinster in the grand final, Matt O'Connor was coaching them over in Leinster and we, um, we got beaten. And then the third year um, we played Munster in the final, and we beat them. So again, it was, talking about learning from, and I know one of your questions was learning from losses. I talk about loss, learning opportunity, stay strong, or, you know, you never lose, you only learn, all those type of things, and like it's that. tough for the time. But, again, uh, we probably played, when we played Leinster in the first grand final over there, it was the first final Glasgow had ever been in, and there was a lot of emotion around, a lot of travelling support. And on reflection of it, um, you Know we played the occasion rather than the game, and that's something we learned from. And then the following year, when we played Munster in Ireland, admittedly it was in Ulster, we we were real focused to the process, the plays. It was one of those games we were, you know, you sometimes coach a team, and you you know in the first five or ten minutes, geez, these guys are on. Right. It was kind of the the uh, sadness from losing the year before and the learnings that we talked about playing the occasion and the fans and, you know, the the emotion, we were just driven and focused. And, um, you know, they had Paul O'Connell and a number of, you know, they were a very good side, Munster. And on that day, we took them apart. Um, So, yeah, that was a wonderful experience. And then uh, the following years, I think we got knocked out, in the, in the semis as well to Connacht, which ended up winning it. And and then I had a number of years where Dave Rennie came over and I just dropped out and did Scotland and, again, worked with Gregor. And, you know, when I worked with Dave, Dave was very big in a lot of Kiwi – sorry, sorry, I'll go back. I missed out on Paul Verne, Verne Cotter. So I worked with Glasgow with Gregor, but at the same time I was working with Verne Cotter with Scotland. Now, Verne – Verne did an exceptional job. His strengths for me was he created a tough culture or an edge. He brought a real edge. The players really enjoyed working under him. Um, he kept people on their toes, both players and staff. Sounds like maybe a little bit what Eddie does on occasion without knowing or without working with Eddie, but um, he kept you on your toes. You had to be on your toes. One minute you were feeling quite relaxed and comfortable and another minute you were... You're in a uh, uncomfortable position.
0: Would he do that on? Would he do that on purpose?
1: I think so. Yeah. Well, yeah, he would. He would do it on purpose. I think so. Just, you know, probably Scotland again. Scotland. You look at where Scotland is now. Like even from when I've left in Scotland, like when I probably came in in two thousand. I got there in two thousand and twelve. My first three games. It was my first international game we played. New Zealand, I think, unfortunately, we got beaten by a fairly big score, it might have been forty. I think we played South Africa. Second game, we got beaten by thirty. We played Tonga in the third game, which was the game we were supposed to win, and Tonga beat us up in uh, Petodri, up uh, in Aberdeen, on a short pitch, which um, so we couldn't really play too much. And um, unfortunately, uh, the our coach there at the time, Andy Robinson he got moved on. So it was three years in, sorry, three games in my international coaching career that the guy, or one of the guys who got me over has just been sacked and it was like, oh my goodness. But um, anyway, so getting back to Vern. So yeah. what Vern did, you know, the Scotland, unfortunately at that period, weren't winning a lot of games, but what Vern did was again, first, first year, Six Nations, we didn't do too well, but the second year, first two games, we beat Ireland, a really good Ireland team. We beat Wales for the first time in a decade. Um, so he just brought a real edge and um, he did a great job. We, If you remember back to the World Cup quarterfinals, we played Australia. Yeah. And it was that with, I think it was three minutes 30 on the clock, we scored that try, uh, intercept try from, from poor old James Slipper and I'm thinking, well, we're going to knock Australia out. And, and unfortunately, in that three minutes from the kickoff, we managed to give away a penalty. And as we know, Australia kicked that goal and went on to to go to the final, which I was, I was lucky enough to have a ticket to the final, so I went and supported Australia after Scotland got knocked out. But um, he was very good with culture and um, bringing an edge to a group, very good at that. And he's got the Blues uh, next year, Super Rugby. Um, yeah. He's also got a guy who I worked with, Jason O'Halloran, another Kiwi guy who coach Scotland and also it was an all black who I think they'll do really well. I think he'll bring a real edge to them.
0: I've just seen he's, he's uh, doing a consultancy with Romania for the world cup as well. So that would be he, interesting. Yeah,
1: yeah. Right. Well, he'll certainly have the forwards. Uh, he would, it was amazing. There was uh, like, we would offer with Scotland. Um, you know, you get on a bus the morning of the game and you go to a park and like a lot of teams might have a bit of a fun game and you might have a walk Whereas I remember, I think it was against. I'm pretty sure it was against Ireland where we knocked him off, and he was pretty motivated too because Joe Smith. He'd worked with Joe Smith for many years, so and Joe was Ireland. He was Scotland, and he was like, "No, nah, I'm gonna. We're gonna beat Ireland." And, uh, <laughs> I remember we played this touch game, and it ended up. And this is like maybe five, six hours before the game, and he was shouting at him, and he was he was into him, and. And it was a bit like, oh, my God, this is like six hours for the game. But he just had that ability to bring out an edge in a group and um, it certainly on that day it certainly worked for us. And we, all of a sudden I think we scored two or three tries before Ireland got out of the blocks and uh, we went on and, uh, and beat them. But he was good at that type of thing, bringing an edge to a group.
0: It's funny. That'll either work or it'll backfire tremendously doing that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he'd he also, also said to us – he was a Kiwi, but he had lived 20 or 25 years in France. So French coaching is built on emotion. Now, you'll see a lot of the French coaches, they won't sit up on a box like a lot of the Southern Hemisphere or a lot of coaches around the world and look strategically. They'll want to be down on the sideline where they feel the emotion and they're, they're trying to push that emotion on the group. And um, we had some funny times in coaches' boxes too <laughs> with with uh, with certain things happening. I remember a time with Jonathan Humphreys, who's with Wales, and he was coaching, and Vern behind us. And I think we were playing USA in the World Cup, and it was a close game, but just him <laughs> shouting at the analysts and the analysts nearly breaking down and saying, like, oh, I'm sorry, Vern, I don't know, and having a bit of a giggle. And even Vern having a giggle, but it's those funny little moments. You remember in big test matches sometimes where it's, you know, pretty tough, but uh, you can have a bit of a laugh as well.
0: I've I've had a coach who've uh, over the loudspeaker before the game. All right, I love you all for the next two hours. Anything I say to you, do not take it personally. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think
1: I think a lot of head coaches can take that leaf out of their book.
0: Maybe something that has changed my life doing this podcast is listening to people's relationship with failure and yeah. how they deal with loss and mistakes and learning. I've said this story heaps of times, but I used to be very afraid of failure. And then I had a conversation with Wayne Smith where I said to him, how did you know something was going to work before you tried it at the All Blacks? Because I could imagine with that pressure, you'd want to know something worked before you tried it. And he goes, we didn't think like that at all. We were not afraid to try things. And a couple of things we tried before, I can't remember which World Cup, were the catalyst for us having the game to win the World Cup yeah, so I've gone, holy holy shit, if this guy's not afraid of making mistakes at the All Blacks, I shouldn't be as well. well. What's your relationship like with failure? how do you how do you learn from it? And do you have any favorite failures that you wouldn't mind sharing that have set you up for later successes?
1: Yeah, I think um, yeah, to get back first of all, I've uh, losses, probably losses for me, particularly maybe ten years ago when I first started the Reds and into my into Scotland as well. You know, for me, it used to hit me pretty hard or I used to be quite down or just pissed off about the whole thing. Now, not to say that I'm still not like that now, but I've got a better reflection and a better perspective on life in general in terms of, yeah, you've lost a rugby game and, uh, yeah, you're professional, but life goes on and you take the learnings. I've been better at that. I still can get better sometimes because I probably sometimes dwell on it a bit too much um i like what you're saying about wayne smith and probably the kiwi kind of coaching fraternity to a certain degree like he said the same he was saying the same things he said to you um a number of years ago way back when he when he came to Scotland. that time they're very good at trying things and yeah they're a little bit more kind of growth mindset and having a go um than i than i felt that i could be and it's a great way to coach i suppose it's yeah, I don't know whether I could go down the continuum of how they kind of did it, but it's good to have a growth mindset and things like that. So it's, it's always difficult, particularly at a professional level. It, it, there's a balance, isn't it? You don't you don't want to have mistakes for the sake of having mistakes, but you've got to learn and you've got to grow from them. I think I mentioned two things I was talking about with the Reds and Glasgow are those two things I quickly just mentioned. I think learning from losses or learning from not achieving what you wanted. So 2010, we ran the ball nearly all the time. And then we made a shift in 2011 where we won it to it. So that was a really big learning opportunity. The learning opportunity with Glasgow from losing the grand final one year to win the next year was uh, play the game, not the occasion. So we were, yeah. So that was kind of two big learnings in my coaching career or things which I can reflect back on and think, you know that that's really really uh important um i think as i said to you before i think what you got to do and with losses or uh, mistakes is get the learning out of them um you know i, I use that acronym loss learning opportunity stay strong so you gotta try and frame it listen i'm just dis- we're disappointed it's it's upsetting, but we've got to take the learnings and move from it and grow from it. I think that's the important thing that you've always got to do. And you've got to frame it that way because if you, you frame it in a negative way, it just, you know, it comes down on people so uh, or it comes down in the group or the mood. So it is getting that balancing act, particularly when you're professional. I think it certainly should be different when you're amateur. I mean, yeah. you know.
0: No, mate, that, that's a good answer. I, I think obviously – you're not going to win all the time unless you're fucking Scott Robertson. But <laughs> it, I think learning learning can actually be learning, making mistakes and failing can actually be a catalyst for success as long as it's not fatal. That's yeah. the way I look at it. Like you've you've got a balanced uh, winning between trying things. And so I think I think getting that balance right is incredibly fascinating in the coaching world, particularly when you're starting out.
1: Yeah, listen, I think unfortunately well. As I said to you before, we all know that professional to damage, damage is different. You're getting paid to do a job and like owners of, you know, look at football or owners or if you don't win quickly and often you're out the door. So, and um, yeah, so it's, it, it is a balancing act. And as I'm just, I was just stressing there with the Wallabies, you've got Eddie in there with a group of new coaches. He's trying to get to know a team. He's trying to develop a, a game plan. He's probably got one eye on the World Cup, potentially one eye down the road for the Lions. I'm thinking so. There's lots going on, so it's bloody tough where they are in terms of their development and what they're trying to do. And mate, I think personally watching them, I think they're they're making some str- good strides, and they're, they're not winning, but you know, um, you know, we might talk about what wins rugby. I know Eddie's always been big on fast starts. They did a, a big research on 56 international games, tier one games. And the, the team that was winning after the first 20, winning or drawing after the first 20 minutes, I think won 82% of games. The teams that were winning at half time in those matches or drawing won 78% of games. So if you take those two Australian games, you'd say fast starts are doing pretty well. Now, as I said, You can be ahead at 20 minutes according to those 56 Tier 1 games, but you still got to finish the job. Um, But that part of the game they might be really focusing or working on, and that's working. Um, You know, Eddie's talked about at stages kicking the ball a little bit more. Like another big stat is generally the team, rightly or wrongly, uh, the team that generally kicks it most wins 76% of games. And is, then, that,
0: is that contextual, that kicking start? Like, Is that just purely the amount of kicks or does kick meters come into that?
1: Yeah, I think – listen, this this was a study done. I've forgotten the guy's name at the moment. He did – I think it was something like 120 test matches, super rugby game, uh, finals games, uh, European games. And he basically threw – I think it was around about 150 games. And he came up with – I think there was about 12 or 14 stats, and they said, okay, what are the stats that matter? So getting back to your what, of course, I think the kicks, you can't just say, oh, "Right, if I kick to you and every kick's a crap kick, you're probably not no. going to win. So I think the accuracy and the strategy of the kicking is very important. But, um, I mean, just if you just go on stats, I think they, they just talk about of the time, if you kick more than the opposition, you're generally going to win. But but I agree, if you add that layer to that stat, there's got to be uh, execution of that type of kick or maybe strategy. The other one in that strategy, sorry, in that study was if you turn over the ball less than the opposition, you win 76% of your games. Now, if you add those two stats together, kick more than the opposition and have less turnovers, that stat went up to something like eighty three percent of winning all games. So it's a little bit of a template for teams, you know. Um, and that and that goes back to your attack as well. How well are you attacking? Are you holding on possession or are you turn it over? Are you, you know, how you're passing? How's your, you know, you're resourcing the ruck? Um, can you
0: can you remember the name of that study?
1: Uh no, I could think, if up. you think
0: about it. If you think about it later, I'll uh, I'll add it to the notes. Yeah, but, yeah.
1: No, well I think it's um Viv it might be Viv Myers. Viv V-I-V M E Y E R. I can send you a sheet with some of the stats on it afterwards.
0: Oh, that'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. have you got time for a couple more questions and then the yeah, rapid sure. fire? Have you got a yeah. solid you got time you got to get out? Yeah, yeah no, that's fine. I won't chew <laughs> up too much more of your time, mate. What uh we just talked a bit about some of the, the trends in winning games. What about just generally for rugby, um, someone involved in the highest levels of the game, what are the current trends you're seeing around the world in rugby? A
1: couple of trends. Well, when um, when you sent through some of those questions, that's why I had those kind of, a couple of those stats on hand ready. So just to say, right, this is kind of from a stats perspective, um, this is what winning rugby is looking like from a stats point of view. The other thing, probably from a high level of rugby, and it's probably all levels of rugby, but generally the team that either defends and attacks on either 22 are generally the best te- well, teams that win a lot of rugby games. So you take the Crusaders, for instance, in Super Rugby this year, they were the best team defending their 22. I think if I look at their stats, I've written down 32%. So they they were the best in terms of their defence in the 22. And I think they were top two in terms of how they attacked in the 22. A lot of teams from a, from a professional level will focus on both ends of the 22s, basically. How you attack, how well do you attack and how well do you repel or defend? And I think if you're pretty much one or two in those areas, you'll generally be probably one or two in your competitions. So that's another area. Um a guy the guy a guy that I've had a little bit to do with, with Brendan Shields at rugby oncology. I don't know whether yeah. you've come across him before or heard of him. I've heard
0: I've heard of the rugby oncology. I haven't heard of Brendan, but
1: yeah, he's got a he's got a great way of looking at rugby and crunching numbers. And he kind of looks at three areas of a lot of teams. He looks at what they call score rate. That's looking at all your attacks of what percentage do you come out with three, five, or seven points. He looks at exit rate, in which how you move up your zones, both running and kicking. And he looks at what he calls high-risk loss, which is how often do you turn over the ball in possession to either a turnover or a penalty. So he's kind of got, if you're above like a a certain amount, I won't won't give his numbers away because I don't know whether I'll get in trouble or not, but if you're over a certain amount in terms of how much you score in your possession um, as well uh, as well as being a certain amount over in terms of moving up the field, as well as keeping the amount of turnovers and penalties, again you're gonna you're gonna win something like 84% of your games. That's n- nearly all in attack in terms of what you do with the ball. Interesting, he was talking about the All Blacks the other day in terms of their score rate. He's he's saying that their score rate in terms of what they manage to do with their possession is. Is outstanding. So, and as we all know about the All Blacks, their ability to tackle, break, line, break, offload, they've always been a team that's been excellent. That the other team, which I look at France, France has a very, very strong defensive game, but also a kicking game. But what I love about them is their players that they have when they want to put it on or explode or that they can just score something out of nothing with, again, the way the French the athletes that they have and the way they, game, they play the game in terms of their offloading. And, you know, a long time ago, like we can talk about how you play a game, but I think um, a French, old French coach that you should coach France as well as Toulouse, I think his surname was Villaprive. I don't know whether you've ever heard of him.
0: No, no. He,
1: he talked about the moving game and he Toulouse slash France has always been very good at their offload or continuity. And, he had a basic structure of, you know, when a team is spread defensively across the field, you've got to punch through them. And when a team is, is bunched defensively, you pass around them.
0: Makes sense.
1: So, yeah. So I was talking to Gregor Townsend a while back. He spent a lot of time playing in France as well. And they'd play little games where a warm up game, they might, they'd start with three pick and goes, three passes off nine, and then you had to pass the ball wide. And that was just, Again, a little bit of a warm up game, but just that ability to kind of see what's in front, work out the defence, and go for it. And I think that sometimes we talk about you know how to play the game and the sequences and structures. I think I think all teams try and get a balance between how many structured phases you have in attack and how also to operate from an unstructured environment. I love how the French play the French teams and. The Reds before Ewan got there under um, a couple of players um, played a little bit of what they call punch spread, what, what I've just described, and I think it's a great way if you can develop that within your game and um, structures. And we'd do a lot of again in a lot of teams which I've been involved in. Whether when I worked at TSS, uh, a couple of other teams, we'd do a lot of things where. You bunch a defense and you turn the attack around and throw them a ball. They quickly turn. Now, if a team was spread, they'd punch through, offload through, try and keep the ball off the deck. And again, if they'll bunch, get it to the edges because it was like an accordion. You were doing that to the defense. I think if you can play little games and build that into your philosophy, that's a great way to play the game. And I love love how France try and do that.
0: Mate, that's. That's great. That's, that's great. I love that. Hey, a um, couple of rapid fire questions for you, mate. I think we've only got through about a third of everything, but uh, I think that could set us up for a number two sometime. Uh, do, do you do much personal development? Do you like reading, podcasts, any of that sort of stuff? I
1: absolutely love reading. And um, this break, you can probably see behind me, I've got, got a couple of um, shelves full of books. And I know in your questions, I've got a couple of books for those people out there that that I really love, and hopefully people get it, get a lot out. They're all NFL books, but they're very good coaching book. One's by Nick Saban; he's the coach of the Alabama. What's team. that? What's
0: how how good do you how want
1: you want to be? That's yeah. an excellent book, and that's general coaching philosophies. The other one is a guy called Urban Meyer. Yeah. Okay, above the line, and that's an excellent book on just overall strategy culture. And things like that, and also one which is actually quite hard to get. It's called Bill Walsh. Bill Walsh finding yeah. the winning edge. It's a it's quite a thick
0: Bible um, of a book. It's awesome. That's awesome, um, that's awesome mate. Thank you. I've I've it's been a while since I've done a podcast where I hadn't heard of any of the books. So yeah, that's awesome. Do you, do you listen to podcasts at all as well?
1: Yeah, I try and listen to a few. Um, a couple of, uh, I've got a couple written down here for you or for the for the listeners if they're interested. Um, I really enjoy the high performance podcast by a guy called Damien Hughes. Now he's yep. got a book here. Now I work with Damien with Scotland. All right, he's got actually a number of books out. This this one is again an exceptional book on coaching. It's yep. called the Five Steps of Winning Mindset, and they're actually quite good because the chapters are about or the little sections are about probably four or five pages, and they've all got a kind of a a title or a or theme, and then it's got little kind of exercises at the end yeah now he's got a podcast high performance podcast which is they go around and talk to high performance a lot of athletes but people in business and talk to them and and get the learnings and understandings of them um another one which i really like is it's called the focus three podcast and it's a guy from called tim knight now the focus
0: three the focus three
1: Focus Podcast. Yeah. And he's basically the guy, the culture creator that worked or had worked with Urban Meyer. Yeah. Um, and he, he's, he, he's actually – the podcast at the moment I think stopped because unfortunately I think the gentleman got um, sick with cancer, to be honest. But, mate, the 10 or 12 podcasts are exceptional. i I found them really good. The other one, which general from a general coaching um, point of view – it's called The Great Coaches by Bill Snyder. Have you yep. heard of that?
0: One? Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, totally. I've listened to a couple, not a lot of them, but a couple, That's it's a good podcast as well.
1: Yeah, it's just good if you want to flick through a coach that you heard of or thing, and then you, like for me, going to Brisbane's always an hour trip, so I like popping that on. Um, and then there's one other one which I've really enjoyed. I'm just trying to um, get his book here. Um, so this guy here. All right, um, called the culture yep. system. I think it's uh, how do you pronounce JP Nurbun. Yeah. Okay. His is coach coaching culture, and again, he interviews lots of cult. This, this book's actually very good on culture. It's how to build a culture with teams and, and organizations. But again, they're ones that I've really enjoyed. And lastly, there's an Irish podcast called Wind Your Neck In. Have you ever heard that?
0: No. no. That?
1: He's an he's Irish um, ex-player who goes around and interviews basically nearly all rugby coaches. Um, if you want your kind of rugby fix in terms of just pure rugby, that's actually quite a good one. And it's an Irish one. So you get different perspectives and maybe some of the coaches you, you haven't heard as much of from over there.
0: Mate, that's awesome. Thank you so much for that. What's yeah. something that you used to be sure about that you've changed your mind on? And you could take that any way that you want to take it.
1: Yeah, I think um, I probably had, particularly when I was a young coach, I probably had strong views on what wins rugby or how how you go about it. But I think there's, from my time overseas and seeing different countries, different coaches, there's, there's a number of different ways in which you can win a rugby game. And it's it's working out how yourself or how your team operates, who you have in the team, what the cultural background is, all those things. So I think there's... There's always a number of different ways in which you can win rugby and no one's right or wrong. It's how you go about it and why you want to go about it or who's in your team really.
0: Yeah. Do you – what advice would you have? I've got two, two more questions. Yeah. What advice would you give a young coach starting out the coaching journey?
1: Um, I would just say work as hard as you can meet as many uh, other coaches, read, listen to podcasts. I think that's certainly something which particularly when I first got back from overseas, and I still do now, but I really went out and searched to talk to people from the defensive area of the game. Um, I think if you can do that as much as you can and develop your understanding and knowledge. um, I went and had a chat to um, the head coach of the Broncos. He was assistant coach. Who's was the guy that's just moved on from St George. Um,
0: oh, what's his name? Yeah, I oh, know who you mean. Yeah, Anthony. Help. Anthony. Uh, yes, Hook. Hook. Yeah.
1: Anthony. Um, I've just had a middle black. He was. He was. We talk about older guys giving their time and effort. He. He actually sat down with me at the Reds. At the time, at the Reds defensively, we would kind of done a little bit of what uh, the wallabies were doing and so when we played the kiwis kiwi would pass the ball left to right and we would go up and out up and out and what you'd end up doing is going backwards a bit like that yeah. so I had a good chat to him and they were all about rugby league anything off a sideline you just you didn't worry about how many numbers were on the edges you just shut it down that was a that was at that stage in 2010 and 11 that was a little bit foreign we we're more about up and out um we we were kind of doing a little bit with what Robbie Deans had been doing, and we changed that. And there was a little bit of resistance, but we ended up that helped the team out. We actually that helped us defensively out. So that was for me just trying to talk to different people and gain knowledge and gain understanding. I think the more you can keep doing that, the more you read, the more you learn, the more you can get on a podcast, um, the, the better you'll get.
0: Mate, last question: If you could tell eighteen-year-old you one thing what would it be
1: yeah i was thinking about that the other day. i would certainly say just control the controllables probably and um, worry about yeah worry about the things that you can control because i think early on you can you can stress yourself or worry or or get wrapped up on things you can't control and in the end um, yeah there's nothing you can do so i'll probably even in the last 2 or 3 years I'll probably reflect on that and become better at it. Just work on what you can control, and the other stuff, you just kind of got to let fly.
0: Mate, that's a great way to end. Thanks so much. Thanks yeah. so much for doing this, mate. This I, I got so many takeaways from that, and I reckon everyone listening will as well. So thank you very much for your time. It was awesome.
1: Yeah, no, thanks very much. I really appreciate. It. And and again, in rugby, we've got another connection now that, you know, that we will always have. So which is great, and I appreciate it.
0: Thank you, mate. Just keep.